Uh, Esther chapter 10, three verses, but I, I hope they will be uh, powerful and meaningful to us tonight. It's the word of God. Martin Luther credited with started, uh, starting the Protestant Reformation that we can trace our Bible-believing roots back to had this to say about the book of Esther. Though I could rightly reject the book of Ecclesiastes, for the time being I accept it so as to not waste time getting involved in a dispute about the books received in the Hebrew canon. For you poke more than a little sarcastic fun at this when you compare Proverbs and the Song of Solomon with the two books of Esdras, Judith, the story of Susanna, the dragon, and Esther, which despite their inclusion of it in the canon, deserve more than all the rest in my judgment to, rebar, uh, to be regarded as non-canonical. Now, that's a mouthful in the translation. It's hard to follow, but the gist of it is that Luther called the book of Esther non-canonical, meaning he thought it should not be in the Bible. He compared it to something called the story of Susanna and the dragon. Uh, and so he just had no heart for the book of Esther at all. Now, why would he think that? Well, Esther is odd in that never, not even once, does the word God appear. It is, in fact, the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God directly in any way. Strangely enough, the book of Esther is the only Old Testament book, which were the only books around at the time, not discovered at Qumran among the Dead Sea Scrolls. And, and so it was uh, not there when they found those. Now, I pointed out that the heroine, Esther, was not only not walking with the Lord at the start of the book, she was positively living in sin. And so for this reason, a lot of the early church fathers, like Martin Luther, and for other reasons as well, they, they had their doubts about this book. Ah, but there is one overriding spiritual truth driven home by this book, despite all of those things. It has a spiritual purpose. And in some ways, it is more powerful because of those things, because of the omission of the name of God and references to God, because what it is teaching us, as I've told you before, and, and we end with this too, it is teaching us the providence of God meaning simply that God provides for himself for the protection and progress of his plan of redemption. And he does it without violating anyone's free will to choose. My summary of the book would read, without violating anyone's free will, God by his providence protected and preserved the Jews in order that his plan of redemption might make progress. Queen Vashti, a Persian, was deposed, and Esther, a closet Jew, became queen and saved her people. Haman, once exalted, was brought low, and Mordecai and the Jews, a subjected people, were exalted and honored. A decree that would have wiped out the Jews was overruled by one which led to the destruction of nearly 76,000 enemies of the Jews. And so it is a, a book of amazing twists and turns uh, that, where you see God's providence, his provision, like probably nowhere else in the Bible, and yet the characters are not puppets. Uh, they are real people making real decisions uh, and real free will decisions. Mordecai makes an important statement concerning the relationship between God's overruling providence and mankind's free will. This was back in chapter 4, verse 14. He's talking to Esther. He's trying to convince her to do something about the decree to kill the Jews, since after all, she is the queen, and he says, if you remain completely silent at this time, 
Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And so Mordecai, who was at the time a non-spiritual Jew, understood that God would see to it that the Jews survived. He didn't need Esther's cooperation. He could provide for himself. She was free to do as she pleased, only her decisions would, of course, have consequences. It's a tremendous statement, really, because we tend to look at this book and say, oh, God put Esther right there at that very moment, but we had to backpedal a little bit when we saw how she got there. She, she got there in a, through a very sinful path, and we don't want to be accused at all or, or even think that God would ordain that she would sin in order that she could be in that position. But finding her in that position, God could use her. And Mordecai says, let God use you now, but if you don't, he's still going to deliver the Jews because of his promises. This reminds me of a whole generation of people like my father, who though not spiritual at all, whenever the subject of Israel came up, understood that they had something to do with a living God who was looking out for them and watching over them. Now, at the same time, you and I can have the utmost confidence that God will provide for his plan for the ages and for his plan in our lives. We are free within his providence to experience the blessings of obedience or the consequences of disobedience. And I would guess that each of us would have some story to tell about a time when we didn't uh, walk in the will of God when we knew what the will of God was and we went our own way, when we made our own choice, <clears throat> or when we had an opportunity and we knew we should have taken it and we refused, uh, and we suffered the consequences for it. And God's plan, his program went on, and it even went on in our own lives as we repented and came back to the Lord. You know, as for the plan of God, we're living in the time between the two comings of Jesus Christ to the earth. We are getting a strong dose of this on Sunday mornings in our study of the Gospel of Mark, but it's something that we cannot emphasize too much. Uh, we need to know where we are in, on God's timeline to understand exactly how to interpret and understand uh, the Scriptures. We're not living in the kingdom of God, but rather the kingdom of Satan, who is called the ruler of this world and the prince of the power of the air. Those are not empty titles. They are real titles. The Apostle Peter, thinking about this age and our responsibilities, made the statement, how should we then live? All of us are working out the answer to that question daily as we seek to walk with Jesus and work for him. You may not actually ask yourself that question or have it written anywhere in the margin of your Bible, but every time we go to a devotion or read the word or hear this, uh, the word taught or whatever it might be, there's that within us that's saying, well, how, how, Lord, should we live in light of what we're learning about you, what we know about you, what you're teaching us? How is it that you want us to live? With that in mind, I think we can take a look at Mordecai living among the Persians and glean some insight as to how we should then live. Uh, because Mordecai came through this and, and some fantastic things happened in his life at the end. In a world dominated by a godless ruler, Mordecai nevertheless was elevated and he was enabled to help further God's cause. And so verse one, only three verses in this uh, chapter, 
uh, verse one, and King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. Seems like an odd statement. I mean, what does that even mean? Well, I was thinking about it, and quite simply, this is what godless rulers do. They exert their influence, their authority over the less powerful. They demand something to show their submission. Uh, You know, this this is why there will never be peace, as Christians say, until what? Until the Prince of Peace comes. Uh, because there's always going to be a godless ruler. There's always going to be a, a Hasherus or a, a Napoleon or a Hitler or someone who is trying to exert their authority over others uh, and, and prove that they have that power. And so this verse is reminding us that despite the relative godlessness or godliness of the country we might live in, overall the kingdoms of this world belong to the devil. It's why he could offer them to Jesus during the wilderness temptation. Remember, the devil said, hey, if you'll just do this, I'll I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus didn't say, yeah, they're not yours to give. He understood that Satan had uh, control, as it were, in a limited sense over the kingdoms of this world. And that's why also in the book of the Revelation, we read of a future time when there's a declaration The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That tells us that they are not in the, uh, you know, that they are still being ruled over by the devil. And and you know that. I mean, you just look at the news, you know, uh, scroll through your phone and see the news or watch it on television. You know there's something wrong with the world. Thus, as we see Mordecai, Mordecai rather, describe, it's against this dark background on this unlit stage. He shines forth in the end, and so should we. And so verse two, now all the acts of his power and his might and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? Just as you think, as you're reading this opening statement, the writer is going to mention the acts of his power and might, referring to Ahasuerus, he breaks off to highlight Mordecai instead. The devil is powerful, he is mighty, but he is also defeated. Think of the book of Acts, which tells of the spreading of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the ends of the world, a spreading of the gospel that's going on today. We're still in Acts 29, as it were, until the coming of Jesus Christ for the church. The devil constantly flexed his power and might against the ragtag group of men and women with little in the way of resources. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, modern church planters and and, uh, people who are doing church today, uh, they'd be lost in the first century. And I know things change. And we live in a different culture, a different society than, you know, Peter and the boys, Paul and his gang. Uh, and so the, it's, you shouldn't make direct comparisons. But it's interesting just, you know, to look at how churches are being planted today. And one of the, one of the ways that churches are being planted today is that people announce a church plant. They say, hey, we're going to go to uh, Hanford and we're going to plant a church and we're going to start once we reach $250,000 in donations uh, or some number like that. And um, you know they have a whole plan for how to do that. And I, I'm not even saying that's wrong. We're not gonna do that, but I'm not even saying that's wrong. Uh, but 
this would have been unheard of in the first century. In the first century, I like these guys in the first century because they had no idea what they were doing. They didn't know they were really planting churches. And then when they did realize they were planting churches, they didn't know uh, what those churches were going to look like. They just kind of went around doing what Jesus said uh, in the Gospel of Mark, uh, uh, sowing seed and seeing what the result was. And so... uh, They had little in the way of resources in the book of Acts, but in every way that counts, they went on victoriously as the devil's strategies, one after another, failed to silence them. In fact, it empowered them. The greatness we see is the glory of God in Jesus Christ empowering us and enabling us because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. In Persia, uh, it was Ahasuerus who advanced Mordecai I'm not suggesting that Satan advances us. He does not. Uh, Just as in every parable, every detail need not have a deep hidden meaning. So in our comparing ourselves to Mordecai, some of the details will not translate over. Alternately, though, if you think about it, we could say that the devil does advance us in that his efforts often backfire. Gino's teaching the book of Acts on Wednesday morning to our men's fellowship. We recently covered, for example, the story of Paul and Silas being imprisoned in the dungeon at Philippi after being beaten. Satan's strategy to silence them backfired when there was an earthquake at midnight. The jail cells were opened. Paul and Silas uh, refused to escape. Uh, Instead, they shared the gospel. The jailer became a Christian in his household. Then they were released the next morning. You know the story. Or they were set to be released. And Paul said, uh, stunning everyone, did I mention, uh, I always fail to mention this. I, really, I wish I had remembered this yesterday. <laughs> Would have went a long way to helping all of us. Did I mention I'm a Roman citizen and that it's illegal for you to have beaten me and thrown me in prison without a trial? And by illegal, I mean you're gonna be beaten and thrown into prison without a trial. And it terrified the rulers of the city so much so that they begged Paul uh, to leave. And and what it did is it left the church on solid ground. Uh, It left the church in a place where they were gonna leave it alone for a while so that it could grow. And so every turn, Satan's strategies backfire on him and they create something Uh, that is completely the opposite of what he was hoping for. Uh, He left behind a small but vibrant, spirit-filled church right on Satan's beach. And so in that way, the devil does promote us uh, because there's nothing he can do. If, If we'll walk with God through every situation, whatever that means, there's nothing the devil can do to defeat us. Uh, He can can beat us, he can throw us in prison, he can uh, kill us, but he can't defeat us. And out of every suffering comes the glory of God. And so verse three, for Mordecai, the Jew, was second to King Ahasuerus. He was great among the Jews and well-received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. I'm reminded of Joseph and Pharaoh, Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. Both of those heroes of the Old Testament were elevated to the second chair Both excelled despite all pressure to the contrary. Now, I wouldn't normally put Mordecai in the same class as Joseph and David. I mean, when you're thinking of of the great heroes of the Bible, 
Mordecai doesn't make the cut, usually. I don't think I've ever seen him on one of those lists. Uh, except, really, I wouldn't put myself on that list either. But I can nevertheless dare to be a Joseph or dare to be a Daniel because from God's perspective, if I'm saved, I'm no less righteous than they or any other believer. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, you know, there, there are no, in one sense, there are no super saints. There are just saints who are more yielded to the same Holy Spirit who indwells all of us. Uh, and so I can dare to be these guys. If Mordecai seems second string to us, he still was used mightily by God, and we can be too. You and I can do what Mordecai did. It says here, he sought the good of God's people, and he spoke peace to them. He was elevated to a place where he could do those two things. Now, those are big, broad categories that can encompass any number of godly actions and reactions to the members of the body of Jesus on the earth, to the church. Just ask yourself, am I seeking the good of other Christians? And if you would answer yes, uh, then what would you cite as evidence? Uh, and so, you know, just think of it that way. Think of it as a question that the Lord is asking you and me. Uh, am I seeking the good of other Christians? Yes, then elaborate a little bit. Uh, how, how are you actually doing that? Uh, not to bust anybody, but to encourage us, uh, to, to show us that, well, actually, I am seeking the good of other Christians, you know? Maybe if you're brave enough, ask another Christian, am I seeking the... Don't ask me. Please don't ask me. I want to stay your pastor. Ask, ask someone else, but uh, uh, I, I fail in diplomacy sometimes. Um, mostly, I, I laugh too quickly. I don't know if you've experienced that in my life, but somebody will tell me something, I'll laugh, and, and it's offensive. I understand that. I, I just can't help myself. <laughs> but anyway, uh, but you know, in some way, maybe just stick to asking yourself with God's help, am I really seeking the good of other Christians? And if I am, if I would just say yes, I wanna say yes, the only real answer to that question is what? Yes. If the answer is no, you've got real problems. But if your answer is yes, then how are you doing that tangibly? And then ask yourself, am I speaking peace to other believers? In other words, do folks walk away from an encounter with me built up or do they feel torn down? Do, are they ready to serve more or are they wanting to quit uh, what they're doing? And, and uh, I think we've all been on both sides of that, people who are encouraging and people who are discouraging. Sometimes you have to speak the truth with love, but when you do speak the truth with love, that's an encouragement. When, when it's a proper rebuke, it's an encouragement, uh, and, and we're not bummed, but some people just, they tear you down and other people build you up. You and I get torn down plenty by the devil. We come here to be built up in our most holy faith, and so we close this whole study by saying, uh, I think it's the Home Depot slogan, isn't it? Let's build something together, amen?